We're carrying on with our ministry sessions on the first epistle of Peter. Remember, this is a follow-up to the character study that we had a few months ago. And so far, we've had um, David Woods and John Terrell uh, kind of stepped in when David wasn't available for one of his slots. And so far, we've talked about a living hope, an incorruptible inheritance, and a sure salvation. Be holy, for I am holy, the chief cornerstone and living stones, temporary residents and foreigners, and today, as David announced, it's First Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses, and it's billed as husbands and wives. The thing that I first noticed is if you look at the title of this passage of scripture in the NIV, it says wives and husbands. So isn't that a lovely balance? <laughs> um, what I'd like us to do is to go back a few verses um, and go to verse 24 of chapter 2. So First Peter chapter 2 verse 24 and then we'll read to the end of verse 7 of chapter 3. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have turned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as, with, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the glorious gift of life, that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is one of those passages of scripture which um, skeptics would take in isolation and say, um, you know, Christian teaching or the apostles were misogynists, um, women haters, and um, it clearly demonstrates that the New Testament is no longer relevant in our society where equality and fairness is all important. Um, that superficially is what you would get if you just read this passage that we read together in isolation. And we must never do that. And we'll come to why the instructions that Peter is giving to wives and husbands is entirely appropriate and actually honouring to God and honouring to wives and honouring to husbands. We'll come to that as, as key aspects. Um, first of all, a, a little bit of um, context. We're 
in the first epistle of Peter. Um, it's probably written about AD 60. So that means if Jesus had still been alive, he would have been in his 60s. Um, let's say Peter was a, a peer of the Lord Jesus, maybe a little bit older. Um, so we're talking about a man um, who would be in his 60s or 70s. And he has a whole career of apostleship uh, under his belt. He's kind of the, the man who was the fisherman. Um, and you can imagine, I, I imagine anyway, quite a, a rough guy, um, rough hands, uh, very weather-worn, um, you know, a typical fisherman, as you can imagine him. And he transitioned from being a fisherman to a fisher of men in response to the Lord's calling. And now, put the clock on 30 years, and he's got a whole career of leadership in churches of God and he's bearing the scars that demonstrate that it has not been easy it's quite interesting that um, if you go to chapter 5 verse 12 of first Peter it says with the help and this is his final greeting with the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother I have written to you briefly encouraging you to testify that this is the true grace of God stand fast in it she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. I'm going to suggest, and it's not an original thought, I've read it in several places, that the reference to she who is in Babylon, uh, chosen together with you, suggests that uh, Peter was himself in Babylon, that is present-day Iraq. Um, and there may have been a church of God there, um, Certainly he has companions there. It would seem a bit strange if he had um, companions like of Silas and this person he's referring to. Um, if um, there wasn't a, a church there. So kind of a fresh thought to me. That is uh, in deep kind of Arabian territory. Um, deep Muslim territory in modern day. And I never really considered there being a church of God in that part of the world, and it might be conjecture. But the, the general sense is that there was, and that Peter was in prison in present-day Iraq. So he's bearing the scars of his ministry. He's had a really tough time, and um, he's awaiting his promised faith. The, the Lord in John 21 indicated that um, Peter actually would be martyred. And Peter is addressing a distinguished group of people uh, and he's delivering potentially what he believes to be his last testament to them. So, a little bit of context. He starts by reminding them of their calling according to God's sovereign foreknowledge. This is the beginning of chapter 1. Um, and he addresses his letter to God's elect strangers in the world. And he goes on to say that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. You've got Father, Son and Holy Spirit all involved in the calling of um, what Peter describes as God's elect um, strangers in the world. This is a very distinguished group of people and they were people in churches of God and while this isn't about our ego, I think it's really important for us to 
um, recognize that whatever we might think of ourselves, our smallness, our unworthiness, as far as God is concerned, we are his elect, his chosen ones. Um, and the whole of the epistle is about Peter encouraging these uh, distinguished people as he sees them to live a life worthy of their calling. So he reminds them in the first instance of their calling, the privilege of collective service in churches of God, living stones being built into a spiritual house where God can dwell on earth today, a holy priesthood whose service is Godward, a royal priesthood whose service is also Godward, but the ben for the benefit of teaching others about the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvellous light. And having dealt with the key functional aspects of collective service, he now turns to the holy lifestyle that must characterise the chosen people of God. That's where we're up to. He describes them as aliens and strangers in the world. That makes my mind go to Romans 12, where we're encouraged to be non-conformist. So aliens and strangers of the world, we're talking about this um, distinguished group of people by God's sovereign choice, and they need to be distinctive. They need to not blend into the rest of um, the world and the culture and, and the standards and um, priorities of the world, but they need to be strangers and distinctive. He talks about encouraging them to abstain from sinful desires. That was David's message last week. One of the things that appealed to me uh, from this expression, and I've not noticed before, it says abstaining from sinful desires. It doesn't say abstaining from sinful practices. Um, now, the two go together, or at least one follows the other. If you um, abstain from sinful desires, then you f I guess we find we don't... Um, transgress into practice it just seems to me that this is a deeper level of holiness it's not just about maybe having those desires and not following them through it's about abstaining from the desires themselves um, and that perhaps is a, a more if there's such a thing a higher quality of holiness <coughs> having a respect and spirit of submission towards those who God has put in place to rule over us um, we also get that from chapter 2. We have a statement about loving each other and then appropriate behaviour to our employers. That's about slaves and masters, recognising that God has put them in their position and put us in our position. So he's saying you're a very distinguished people. Here is um, your church con constitution, living stones being built into a spiritual house. Here is your service, holy priesthood service and royal priesthood service, Godward, and as a testimony to people around you. And now your lives as a church and your lives as individuals should be characterised by a higher level of holy living. And it's not just the outside, what the outside sees in, in terms of the practical things of the way we live, but it's about abstaining from those um, inner desires that no one else knows about so it's a high level of holiness and that should be um, demonstrated by our relationships both with each other in the church and also by our relationships with those who are in authority over us outside of the church for example in our workplace he says that that's tough 
because sometimes our employers in those days, our masters, their masters if they were in a, um, a master-slave situation, sometimes that's not fair and it's not easy. And he goes on to say, well, if that's tough, so be it, because Christ knows how that was too. Um, so we're now moving into um, the next part that Peter feels is an important characteristic of these distinguished people who are living holy lives. And it's how the relationship in marriage should be characterised. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say that these seven verses are not an exposition on marriage. Sometimes we might fall into that trap and there's a few illustrations of it around the Bible. You, you know, you see husbands and wives mentioned here and you think, okay, well, that's, that's you know, um, an exposition on marriage. It's not. It's actually a statement on um, ob observable behaviour between a husband and wife. Um, Peter doesn't explain why this is the case. He just says this is the way you should be. And if we need to understand why, which of course we do, and that's why it's dangerous to just take this um, passage of scripture out of context. Um, it needs to be put in the context of the whole purpose of marriage. I don't know if you remember, or maybe you weren't here, but Ian gave a, a, just a, an excellent ministry on Ephesians 5, which is a core scripture on that is an exposition on marriage. And it gives the fundamental principles about um, how marriage is something that God has invented to help us human beings in our very limited way understand a relationship that Christ has with his church. You know, sometimes we think that um, maybe scripture borrows something that's familiar to us like marriage and uses it to illustrate something more difficult. Actually, uh, what came first was the, the relationship that Christ has with his church. And I can just kind of, the way I think of it is God was thinking, how can I how can I help these mortal men with their limited capability at this point understand the amazing concept of the relationship between Christ and his church? I know, I'll invent something called marriage and this is um, something they can really get into and understand and that is just a little illustration of how, um, what my vision is for Christ and his relationship with his church. It's when you see it in that context, and I would encourage you to listen to Ian's ministry because on this particular subject, it doesn't get much better than that. It's really uh, very clear and, uh, and precious. But when you see statements like 1 Peter 3, the first seven verses, in the context of what God invented marriage for, it just makes a whole lot more sense. We haven't got the time to go into that now, but you know, and that's already been covered to some extent, but I would encourage you to go and uh, listen to Ian's ministry. Um, there is special emphasis on the impact a holy living wife can have on her unbelieving husband. That's one of the statements that Peter is making. That um, they, that's the unbelieving husband, uh, may be won over without words. I think that's a brilliant expression. There would be, um, no doubt, examples of wives who had come to know the Lord, been added to a church of God, were in service, and their husband had no clue about this. You know, this was very odd change of behavior, change of, um, of outlook, 
um, change of priorities that they would see in their wife and potentially very damaging to their relationship. And what Peter is saying, actually you, wife, you have a brilliant opportunity here to demonstrate without words, just by your own behaviour, um, that what you have is very precious and by so doing, reach your husband for the Lord. So there's kind of a, a motivation here for a, shall we call it a mixed marriage, where the, um, the husband isn't a Christian. So there's an opportunity for, um, for witnessing going on, and it's without words. That is the best kind of gospel, or the best kind of testimony, is when our behaviour demonstrates that we've got Christ's love in our hearts rather than uh, preaching it with words. The expression is be submissive in the NIV or be in subjection to. It literally means being under and being orderly. Um, there is a, an inclination perhaps for us to think that this is about inferiority, that somehow the wife is of a lesser rank than the husband, far from it. Um, I'd like to see this as a, a kind of underpinning. If you pull the word apart and see that the wife plays a foundational role in the marriage, it's, that's about strength and support in, in difficult times. And um, it's about being orderly, <laughs> Um, and there is a sense of keeping the, the husband kind of in check. Um, and I just see these as very complementary to the relationship. And the expression that's used is about being submissive and in subjection. But it really is not about superiority or inferiority. It's about God's order and how that the husband and wife have roles together which are entirely complementary and are the making of uh, a brilliant double act and team together that's long-lasting and very uh, effective. Um, Peter talks about the wife and her testimony without words uh, of pure and reverent living. So that's about our our personal holiness there's, uh, and her personal ho holiness as is observed by her husband um, you know that is inevitably one of the things about marriage there is an intimacy that is unique and although it is possible to keep secrets I know that there is a sense that um, a husband and a wife they know each other best um, and what a testimony if what a husband, whether he's a believer or otherwise, observes in his wife a personal holiness and a purity and a reverence for God that is um, based on her faith and commitment to her calling. It goes on to this uh, statement about um, not having a beauty that is, I'll call it skin deep. Um, I think some people extrapolate this verse and this statement to say that it's somehow wrong for a, a wife to make herself look beautiful <laughs> I don't think that's the case at all in fact quite the opposite you've got a lot of um, of 
scripture were, you know, the physical beauty and, and what might be done to enhance that is, is part of the theme. I'm thinking of Song of Songs as an example. And I know that's a very special love poem, but um, what Peter is saying here is it's all very well if a, if a wife makes herself look beautiful on the outside, but actually that we're not into this superficial beauty. What really counts is her heart. And I think that's really the, the thing that we, we should be thinking of, not criticising um, people if they like to make themselves look nice, criticising wives if they might like them like to make themselves look, like, look nice. It's more recognised that actually it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's allowed, but it's pretty superficial. What, in terms of the quality of that person, what really counts is what's going on in her heart. Um, it talks about her having a gentle and quiet spirit and that being of great worth in God's sight. Um, does a wife who has a gentle and quiet spirit, is this a demonstration of weakness, of um, somehow inferiority? I think it's a great demonstration of strength. We're not suggesting that... Um, gentleness uh, and quiet spirit is weak at all. Actually, sometimes it's more difficult to be gentle in a certain circumstance than it is to be aggressive. It takes more strength to do that. I just think that what Paul is, sorry, what Peter is saying here is we're looking for wives in this distinguished community that he's addressing his instructions to, to be mature and have a, a spiritual depth about them that means they can um, respond to situations, respond to their husband in a way that is about support and strength and not in any way weakness. He talks about um, an illustration from the Old Testament. He points us to uh, Sarah calling her husband Abraham master. We get that from Genesis 18, I think it's verse 12. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. This is where Abraham was visited by some angels and they were to, some messengers from God and they were to tell him that his wife in her old age was going to bear a son after all this time. And Sarah was earwigging in the tent even though she, she wasn't there in the conversation. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And it's quite interesting, Peter is referring very precisely to one word in that whole story. And it's the fact that Sarah called Abraham her master. In the older versions, it is translated Lord. And again, there is a implication of, of respect, um, but not necessarily, or not at all, Abraham lording it over her. It's just the attitude that she had to her relationship with him, and she, in her own thinking that becomes public in this statement here, is putting Abraham 
in his position, in his right position, as she saw him. There's a, a statement, isn't there, about um, the weaker sex? And again, a sceptic might think that that is pointing to the inferiority of women. I think that's a reference to physical weakness. The fact is, women, uh, generally speaking, not always the case, um, are physically the weaker sex. That's why we have women competing in the Olympics together and men competing in the Olympics together and not much combined. It's just a fact. Um, so we should nip that one in the bud if that was ever to be uh, considered what's being taught here. I'm really grateful for um, the last verse in this section which says in the same way husbands are to be considerate. This is a not a one-way street. This is about um, how people observe not just wives, but husbands and their relationship together. And it's about being considerate. Um, that means honouring. You know, so if there is any hint that a husband here is being given the, the right to somehow be dishonouring to his wife, um, far from it. Um, it's about seeing this wonderful person that um, God has joined together um, in their marriage and she is a perfect complement to him she's a foundation to that relationship as I see it and um, he is to be honouring of his wife and that has all kinds of manifestations it's how a husband is seen to treat his wife it's um, how he treats her privately it's how he demonstrates his respect for her in their relationship and finally, just that last sentence, um, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Um, perhaps there is a, a hint here, and this has a much broader application, that if there is any hint of hypocrisy, if we are saying one thing outwardly and doing something, behind, something differently behind the scenes, that is a barrier to prayer. And what Peter is saying in answering the, the statements he's making about the behaviour of wives by matching that with a statement about the behaviour of husbands he's encouraging complete honesty in this relationship and what people see from the outside should be reflected in what's going on the inside and that is totally God's honouring God honouring hence the reference to that it may not hinder your prayers it's obviously a challenge to those of us who are blessed to have uh, a marital partner, husband or wife. It uh, helps us to ever put each other into perspective. And I would encourage, and context, I would encourage us to go back to Ian's ministry on Ephesians 5. And we can see the, the theology that supports this, these statements that Peter is making. And remember, what he's saying is you're a distinguished community. You've been called into this service. And a lot of it is church activity. But there are a very important part of it is also how you behave together. And he's elevating the importance of husband and wife and wife and husband behavior so that it demonstrates the impact that God's calling has had on our lives. Shall we pray?